Hello, welcome to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. My name's Jeremy McCandless. And the project is to work through the whole Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And today, friends, we launch off on season three of our journey together through the whole Bible. And today, we're going to be looking at the book of Matthew. As I've said previously, the pattern is going to be we're going to go alternatively between Old and New Testament books, and God willing, work through the whole Bible over these next five years or so. Before launching off straight into Matthew, I think it would be worthwhile for us to spend a few moments looking at the four Gospels themselves and the writing of those Gospels. Now, according to a long-standing tradition, these first four books of the Bible, of the New Testament anyway, are known as Gospel. This is probably because they record the Gospel, which means the good news of the coming of Jesus Christ, the Saviour of the world. It's worth noting that each of the four gospel writers had a special purpose in writing his book, and each of them selected and used the material accordingly. In other words, that which was relevant to the particular aspect of the life of Jesus that they saw or experienced that they wanted to tell us about. Each gave their own emphasis to teaching and events from the life of Jesus according to the purpose of each book. You see, each gospel writer wrote for a different group of people. They wrote into various cultures, into various backgrounds, even into various countries. And in themselves, they came from different racial and religious backgrounds. Yet, there is no disagreement. There is a harmony across all the four gospels in the picture of Jesus Christ that they describe. All four writers will declare he is divine, and he is human, and he is Lord of all, and that he is and will be the saviour of the people. You see, these four Gospels and the people who wrote them are not just attempting to do straight biographies of Jesus, and they make no attempt to give a detailed or chronological account of Jesus' life in its entirety. Nevertheless, they give the people they're expecting to read them all the facts that that particular group of people need to know in order to make a decision to believe in Jesus as the Son of God and also to make a decision to be saved by trusting in him and living their lives in accordance with his will, handing over their lives to him as described in John 20 verse 31. Taken together, the four Gospels present a picture of all the main periods in Jesus' life. These three periods depicted, depending on which Gospel account you're looking at, may include his early childhood, his public ministry, of course, appears in all of them, i.e. his teaching, his healing, his miracles, etc. And, of course, they all show his death, burial and resurrection. The stories of events leading up to and including and immediately following Jesus' birth are given at length in several of the Gospel accounts. 
However, nothing more is written about his childhood in any of them until he's 12 years old. And even then, only one incident is recorded. But that incident is there because it is enough to show that even at an early age, Jesus knew that he had a special relationship with God. For he was, as Luke put it, he was in fact God's son. But in all the accounts, nothing more is recorded in the Bible for approximately the next 18 years of Jesus' life until he's around about 30 years old. Then he appears and begins his public ministry and that's picked up right at the beginning of Mark or, for example, in Luke in 3.23 and it's seen to last about three and a half years. Much of his work and ministry will be done in Galilee but he will meet his fiercest opposition in Judea in the south, particularly when he gets into Jerusalem, which of course was the centre of Jewish power. The religious leaders considered Jesus a threat. They said Jesus was guilty of blasphemy in his claim to be the Son of God, and they were constantly looking for an opportunity to kill him. Jesus, however, continued to carry on his ministry openly, knowing that he could well be arrested, knowing, in fact, that he would indeed be killed, but also knowing that those events would only occur after he finished his public ministry and at the time appointed by his father. It would only happen when the correct time, the fullness of time, had come. We are told that in Luke's account, 13, 31 and 33, John chapter 8, verse 20, John 13, verse 1, and other verses across John 17. We will see Jesus' last week in Jerusalem will be full of activity and it is recorded in greater detail than any other part of his life. He enters Jerusalem as Israel's Messiah, cleansing the temple, debating with the hostile Jewish appointments, giving teaching to his disciples on many subjects along the way until eventually he's arrested. Thereafter, we will see that he is cruelly treated, falsely condemned and crucified. Thereafter follows an account of his burial and resurrection and activity is seen after the resurrection in several of the gospel accounts. Finally, we will see that he returns to the Father, but with the promise that he would one day return. Soon after Jesus' ascension, we will see his disciples begin the task of spreading the good news of the salvation he has brought. They started in Jerusalem and from there the gospel will be seen to spread to the neighbouring provinces and then to countries beyond till Christianity is firmly established in Western Asia and Eastern Europe. This growth takes place over a period of about 30 years, AD 30 to AD 60. So from the time of Jesus' death, about 30 years after that. And it will be described in detail for us in the book of Acts, which of course we'll eventually get to, which follows the story of the beginnings of the church following on immediately after these four gospel accounts. As the years pass, the church will be seen to grow. And those who have seen and heard Jesus personally, as they become fewer in number and more widely scattered, it was felt that in order to preserve what these original witnesses saw and taught about Jesus himself, people at this point began to prepare written accounts of the things Jesus said and he did. In the writings of these original four Gospels, we see the origins of our New Testament. 
The first of the four Gospels was probably written about AD 60 and the last completed about 30 years later. It seems that many Bible experts believe that Mark's Gospel was the first to be written. Mark had assisted the Apostle Peter in his missionary work and took them through the north of Asia, which is modern-day Turkey, and brought them eventually to Rome. That's recorded for us in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 1 and again in chapter 5 verse 13. When Peter left to go on further journeys, Mark remained for a while in Rome. It was the Roman Christians themselves who asked Mark to write down the story of Jesus as they'd only heard it verbally from Peter at that point with the result that he wrote the book, the first gospel account which we know as the Gospel of Mark. Over the years Luke had been preparing an account of the life of Jesus. Luke was a great historian. Luke gathered material. Paul also was seen to deliver accounts of Jesus and his life as well as stories and eyewitness accounts from people still living in Palestine who had heard about Jesus and when he arrived in Rome and met Mark he took actually some of Mark's material and added it to its home to help bring his books to completion. Whereas Mark wrote for a group of Christians based in Rome, Luke wrote for someone who is probably not a Christian. This person is named as someone called Theophilus, and he appears to have been a local government official of some considerable importance. But Luke's purpose was to give him a trustworthy account of the origins of the Christian faith, of Christianity, as was seen in that area at that time. Luke tells us this in chapter 1, opening the first four verses of his account this way. Luke's account was so long, it actually later became divided into two books, the first of which will cover the events from the birth of Jesus to his ascension, and we know that today as Luke's gospel, and the second will cover the events from that point forward until Paul's arrival in Rome, and we know that portion of his writing as the Acts of the Apostle. John's Gospel is different in form and style than the other Gospels. The book was probably written within the last decade or so of the first century, by which time the other Gospels were widely known. Although John follows the same development of the story from Jesus' baptism to his resurrection, his purpose was not to produce another narrative account of Jesus' ministry, his purpose was he wanted to instruct people in the basis of the Christian faith, give them an understanding of Christian truth concerning who Jesus was and what this meant for the people potentially of the whole world. The reason John wrote his gospel was that in the region where he lived, probably Ephesus in Western Asia Minor, people were confused because of the activity of false teachers that were prevalent at that time. Some of them were denying that Jesus was in fact fully divine. Others said that he was just a man. And John is seen to oppose these teachings, not only in his gospel account, but very specifically in the writing of his letters, particularly John 1, his first letter. But his chief reason for writing was not negative. He felt he had a divine positive purpose, and that was to lead people to see Jesus as the Son of God and so find true life through him. And that definition of what his purpose was, I've just quoted him himself. He says it in the final chapter of his book in verse 30 to 31. Much of John's gospel therefore consists of teaching 
and most of that teaching comes from the recorded words of Jesus himself. And now we come to the Gospel of Matthew, the one we're starting off today with. The Gospel of Matthew appears to have been written about 10 years after the Gospels of Mark and Luke. Matthew's concern was to produce an account of Jesus' ministry that was especially suited to the needs of the Christians of Jewish background. His book shows a particular interest in the fulfilment of God's purposes concerning Israel's Messiah and the response of the Messiah's people to the spread of his message to the Gentiles. By this time, as I've said, Mark's gospel had become pretty widely known and because it represented Peter's account of Jesus' ministry, it was very well respected. Matthew included much of Mark's own material in his book. About 90% of what we see in Mark, similar accounts are also found in Matthew, but there is also a significant amount of material that is also common to Luke and not found in Mark. And because of the parallels that exist between Matthew, Mark and Luke, these books are often referred to and clumped together as what are called the synoptic gospels, meaning that they see Jesus from the same viewpoint. In contrast to the Gospel of John, of course, which had a particular, slightly different purpose in mind. Each of these synoptic Gospels have material of its own, and they have no parallel in the other Gospels. In other words, they've got unique material of their own. In Mark, this amount is less than 5%, but in Matthew, nearly a third of it is unique to Matthew himself. Some have called Matthew's book the book of the kingship of Jesus Christ. Matthew has in fact been called by some the most important book of our Christian Bible. Some say it would be the most important book ever written. The title Matthew is given to it actually in the second century because at the time it was brought together and started to be circulated, they wanted to clearly reflect the early church's belief that the author of this book was in fact the original apostle called Matthew. The book itself within the text does not identify itself or its author by name, but the early writers of the church, those who probably either knew the apostles themselves or were one generation away from it, unanimously credit the writing to Matthew. There is a little bit, however, it's fair to say, some uncertainty concerning the stages of the development of the book that it went through before reaching its final version in the second century. However, I need to say categorically, it is recognised without reservation that Matthew's writings were the major source of the material of this book. So who was Matthew writing to? Who were the recipients? Well, like I said at the beginning, like the rest of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew was written in Greek. And it seems to have been written for Greek-speaking Jewish Christians, those based mainly in and around Palestine and Syria. And its purpose was to reassure them that Jesus was in fact the Messiah promised in the Old Testament, maybe appearing not quite in the way that they had imagined or expected, but that he was indeed the one who fulfilled the purpose of Saviour, the Messiah which God had chosen for both the people of Israel and ultimately the whole world. Now the likely place for the writing of the book was in an area called Antioch, which is in modern day Syria. 
which was intricately connected with the Jewish churches of the region and was a place where mission to the Gentile nations came out from. When the church was born, it initially only increased in Jerusalem and Judea, but opposition soon developed. Uh, we see that in Acts chapter 8. And because of this opposition, there was a need to encourage ex-Jewish believers who were becoming persecuted. It was important to offer them the ability to refute what their opponents were saying. And the Gospel account written by Matthew would give them the tools, if you like, the ability to be able to do that. It would prove not only that the Gospel of Jesus was not a contradiction of the Old Testament, but that Jewish people could become believers in Christ because they could see it as a fulfillment of the Old Testament. The subject of the book is to portray Jesus Christ as Messiah, King of Israel. He is referred frequently to the son of David throughout in Matthew 1, Matthew 9, chapters 15, 20, 21, 22. We will discover that the Magi will seek the King of the Jews as they describe it. The prophecy of Micah 5, 2 will be applied to him here in Matthew chapter 2, verse 6. He will be seen to fulfill many, many of the Old Testament prophecies, particularly those that refer to him as king. The message here is Jesus is the Messiah as promise of old. The Messiah who will be rejected by Israel but will die and rise again. And in his life he will be seen to commission his disciples, initially making them disciples and then commissioning them to carry on his work once he has rose again and ascended to heaven. In terms of structure, the material in Matthew is arranged approximately a quarter to the subject matter rather than a direct chronology. It's built around the five main teaching sections where we see Jesus instruct his followers or the general public in what is required of those who wish to enter the kingdom of God. Each of these five sections, five sermons some people might say, you can spot them because they conclude with a phrase that he uses to finish this, which says something like, when Jesus had finished saying these things. The five sections concern the personal behaviour of those people who wished to be followers of Christ. The main one, the largest one, covers Matthews 5-7 to and is collectively known by many as the Sermon of the Mount. Then there is Matthew 10, where there is teaching given specifically to the twelve disciples. And then in Matthew 13, we see a series of parables, often called the parables of the kingdom. In Matthew 18, we will see an extensive amount of teaching on the greatness of God and the forgiveness of God. And then, of course, there's that amazing passage of scripture looking at not only the present situation but also looking at the future coming of the kingdom and much of the end time teaching and that's often referred to as the Olivet Discourse, the Sermon on the Mount of Olives. These five lengthy discourses dominate the book. About 60% of Matthew's thousand plus verses will be seen to contain the spoken words of Christ and these five discourses mark a sort of uh, dividing markers of this book and in the final analysis the subject covered in the book here determine its structure not the chronology so thinking about the purpose of Matthew when he wrote this well his first 
purpose, as I said, is to explain that though Jesus was proven by the prophecies to be the Messiah and King, Israel was seen to reject him. So in a sense, the kingdom was deferred and the church was born, all within God's plan. Because by doing that, that would allow everyone potentially worldwide to enter God's blessing and God's kingdom. You see, Jewish believers were now facing a dilemma concerning Christ. The Jewish nation had been expecting a conquering king who would kick out the Romans and set up the great Jewish kingdom. And if Jesus was the Messiah, then why hadn't that happened? Why had they rejected him? What happened to this kingdom? Was it just the spiritual fulfilment of the Old Testament? Or had God turned his back on those promises and covenants given originally to the patriarchs? because of Israel's rejection of the Messiah. These people needed clarification on these issues concerning Christ's relationship to the Old Testament, the kingdom, and his purpose to the church. And Matthew seeks to meet that need, that understanding, by pointing out repeatedly that Jesus did in fact fulfill the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah. And he uses many, many Old Testament quotes and allusions. In fact, He quotes the Old Testament about 130 times, more than any other book of the Bible, to show that Jesus fulfills the qualifications for Messiah as depicted in the writings, the Torah and the ancient writings. Matthew also refers to the kingdom of heaven more times than any other of the gospel writers, 33 times in total. That exact expression does not occur anywhere else in the New Testament other than in Matthew. He first shows that they rejected their king, the Jews rejected the earthly kingdom. Then he will show how God's coming kingdom has been postponed to allow the promise of Israel to be spread out to the wider world and the wider nations of the world. The promises of Israel are not cancelled and some are yet to be fulfilled, he teaches. But in the meantime, God has inaugurated an entirely new and a previously unrecognized program by the Jewish religious leaders anyway and this new program is called the church Matthew is the only gospel in which the word church appears and it's a word used that is there to depict the new universal character of the church wider than the old idea of the Jewish synagogue Matthew shows an emphasis towards the Gentiles also. He's teaching the Jews, but he's widening the perspective for them to include the Gentile nations in their thinking. This can be seen in many ways. Firstly, in him mentioning and teaching on two Gentile women in Christ's genealogy. We see that in the opening verses 1 to 5, which we'll cover off in our next episode. Then in his reproduction of the sayings, many from the east and west will be seen to sit down together in the kingdom of heaven. He actually tells us that in Matthew chapter 8. In doing that, he's quoting the prophecy that the Messiah would proclaim judgment to the Gentiles and the Gentiles would find hope in him. And then at the end, we shall see the risen Christ issuing the great commission, very specifically to make disciples of all nations and that's in Matthew 28:19. But the second purpose of Matthew is to encourage persecuted Jewish Christians in their faith. Jewish Christians were often persecuted by unbelieving Jews for leaving behind the religion of their ancestors. 
Matthew here attempts to reassure these new Christians of a Jewish background by pointing out they're not the ones who have wandered away from the Old Testament faith. Rather, they are the ones who have found the true fulfilment of it. Jesus is not seen to contradict the law, but has brought out its full meaning. Matthew specifically says that in chapter 5, verses 17. And Jesus has laid foundation for this, his new church. Also saying that no opposition, whether from Jews or Romans, would ever be able to overpower it. So in summary, Matthew will be seen to present Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ, the King of Israel, who, though rejected, died and rose again, and then commissions his disciples, telling them and us today to go and make disciples of all nations. Okay, friends, that's it for today. It's going to be an exciting journey together, isn't it, through this book of Matthew. I do hope you'll come back again and join us every day as we work together chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through this entire book. If you're here for the first time today, I'd just like to point out that there's always a full transcript of what I've said available in the episode notes of the audio version of the podcast. Doesn't matter where you happen to get your podcast from, you should find a link there to episode notes, which will give you the transcript of what I've said. And there'll also be links there where you can connect to my other teaching and ministries, and you can also support this ministry if you want. But there we are. That's it for today. I do look forward to meeting with you again next time as we gather together on the Bible Project Daily Podcast. Bye for now.